0: Tonight we're going to talk about um, editors and editing and publishing um, because there was a question on my Ask Me Anything page um, about it. And um, I linked (laughs) the podcast to it and I went back to copy and paste the content of the question and couldn't find it. And there are like 500 of those comments on that page. So I just was like, okay, I'll come back and find it later. Um, But I'm pretty sure it was from BAST. Um, Wanting to to talk about this um, Because they weren't finding um, good definitions for it And the question was asked last year But um, like I said There are a whole bunch of questions on there So um, I haven't gotten to all of them And that's just the one I came across this evening That seemed really appealing to me So that's what we're going to talk about Um, Depending on the publishing house uh, By the way I am a, A I had a major hot flash today this morning, and I might have another one. So if if you suddenly get like um, a string of curse words and then some music, that's me having a hot flash and not wanting to share the actual content of the hot flash with you. Um, (coughs) But it was like a fucking volcano went off. I mean, I have. I thought I was having hot flashes. I was not. I was having like little heat waves or something. I had no idea. I had no idea um so yeah it is it was f- surprising it was surprising i I really didn't have a clue wow, welcome to menopause anyways <clears throat> anyways um as you um are approaching um the professional publication uh you you'll get a lot of information don't you from various um directions about agents, about publishers, about how to submit, how to write your cover letter. Um, but what sometimes it remains a mystery is what happens to your book um, at a publishing house before and after a contract. So <clears throat> this is just my experience. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> um, my first book, what happened? Um, is that I um, submitted to an agent. Um, I got signed with an agent. Uh, It was kind of surprising. I was like, yay, yay me. Um, And the agent shopped the book. And what happens when a book hits a publishing house is it goes to an acquisitions editor. And various publishing houses have different acquisitions editors for different lines. If it's a huge house, like, say, Penguin, or they'll have a a team of acquisitions editors for each line. Um Harlequin has acquisition editors for for um the, their various romance lines. Um so you wouldn't submit a sweet romance to um the acquisitions editor who is currently handling I think they're called Blaze. That's their erotic titles. So you need to know who is in charge of what if you're doing your own submissions. <clears throat> if, you're edit- if, if you have an agent, your agent's doing that shit for you. If you don't have an agent and you're approaching publishing houses, especially in New York houses where they have like 40 or 50 page um, contracts that are written probably in English, but you're not quite sure, um, don't sign one of those big giant contracts that don't make sense without an agent. You, you need an agent for that shit. You need an agent. Um, and it's not going to be hard to find an agent. If you have a publishing deal on the table, if you have to do it the other way around, um, independent houses, like, you know, online houses, like I currently have a book published at cobblestone, they have really simple contracts, seven, eight, 10 pages, and you can read them pretty easily and you, they're really boilerplate and it'll be like, we're going to have your rights for this many years, you're going to get paid this percentage, um, it's really standard, you know, there'll be an out clause, um, And all that stuff, and it'll be fine. But if you're going to do a big house like Penguin or Bantam um, or Tor, Harlequin, especially Harlequin, especially Harlequin, never, ever, ever sign a deal with Harlequin without an agent. Ever. Ever, ever. I can't tell you how many nightmare stories I've heard from... Authors who have published with Harlequin without an agent. You need that vanguard in front of you if you're going to get with a monster like Harlequin. Um, I'm not saying they're a bad company because they're not. And that's good money. You can make good money with them. But if you give them an inch, they'll take 10 miles. Uh, So you need an agent. Or you need somebody on your side of the fence a, a really, really experienced author to help you with that contract. Say, okay, we're not going to agree to you getting lifetime rights to my story. That, that's just not how that's going to work. Um, and stuff like that. But an, an agent, is it. Um, their job is to protect you and, and protect rights of your stories um, and your books. And so um, agent, agent, agent. You, you won't regret it. Um, but anyways... So, okay. Let's say your book has landed on an acquisition editor's desk. What happens next? Your acquisition editor is the the gatekeeper um, for a publishing house. They decide what goes up the chain. So, say your book presses acquisitions editor. Then they go to a purchasing committee. This is in big houses, not small houses. Um, And they'll discuss the merits of your book and and why they think it deserves to be published. And then a decision, it'll get passed around. They'll read parts. They may read the whole thing. Um, My first book, it hit the publishing house that it ended up being published with. Um, my, My acquisition editor read it. And before she got to committee... She was so excited about my book, and it's really flattering that she passed it around to practically everybody she could get her hands on to build up buzz. So by the time she hit the committee, they were all like, "Okay, yeah, well, I've I've already read it." You know, I've I, you know, because she had passed it around in the company to make sure that it got a lot of attention. Super helpful. Um, and okay, so I passed the acquisitions editor. Now, sometimes your acquisition editor will also be your content editor. They'll come back to you and say, okay, I really like this book. I want to offer you a contract, but I need you to change this, 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 and that. I need you to give your hero a new name because Edwin's not sexy (laughs) or something like that. You know, You've got a plot hole here. I'm, I'm not really feeling this particular scene. Um, just it was an example. Edwin, it, it's a terrible name, um, but it was just it was just an example. And if there's somebody out there listening, because I know I have a very large male audience, I don't understand why. I do. I kind of do. My my husband explained it. You pervy old dudes. Anyways, your name is fine. It's just not the kind of name you put in a romance novel. Okay, I'm sorry. Blame your parents. So your content editor is going to handle that kind of – and what they're looking at is not so much – now, sometimes they'll, if if there's a glaring plot hole that they can't get past the committee, they're going to make you fix that before they present your book. Um, But for the most part, their job is to make sure that your content meets the style guide um for content that you're not um uh, for instance um in 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 some romance lines um anal sex is completely out of the question um in, in in some romance lines um the heroine and the hero can't have sex until they said I love you these are the kinds of things that uh, an acquisitions editor has to pay attention to when she's pulling books to present for um um to lobby to be contracted. So that's her job. Um, His or her job.
1: Because
0: my second acquisition editor was actually a man. And, wow. Anyway, (laughs) your content editor may very well end up being your acquisition editor, especially if they're in charge of the tone of the line. If the line that they're um, buying for has a certain kind of – Overall theme or tone, like if you're writing for a line of shifter novels, um, they're going to want you to uh, adhere to a certain standard, a certain formula, so she may shape your book a little bit before it hits regular editing. one in the chat room asked if um, Ties at Bind would be a problem. Not for some publishers. It greatly depends. Um, And some lines in Harlequin are a great deal more open than you think. Um, A a Sweet Romance? No. Um, A a Harlequin Presents? No. A Harlequin Desire? Absolutely not. Um, A Blaze? Especially post Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah, absolutely. But no, because it's gay, um, and I'm not sure they publish gay novels in The Blaze. Um, but they do publish them at Carina, which is a, the E branch of a of Harlequin. Um, so it's possible. Um, and I don't want to pick on Harlequin because, like I said, they're actually a, a good company to publish with. But you need a you need a gatekeeper for for you not for the publisher but for you so you need an agent if you're going to work with harlequin it's just that's that's just my opinion anyways <clears throat> so after you've gone through acquisitions and you've gone through content where you have met the standard that your buying editor has asked of you you've uh, fix any problems that she had with... Uh, and like I said, this could be a separate person or it could be the same person. Um, sometimes the acquisition editor will have a junior editor under them to, um, to to do their content work and they'll go through your book and figure out all the parts that they would like to be tweaked or changed based on um, publishing on um, the, the publisher house standard. So after that happens, um, you go to a line editor. Now a line editor's job Is to fix your grammar, um, to um, review your readability, uh, to to let you know that it's completely unacceptable to have a 500 word paragraph. No, seriously, do you have do you have any idea how big a 500 word paragraph would be in a traditionally published book in a paperback? It would take up a page and a half. It would take up a page and a half, sometimes two pages for a single fucking paragraph. That's why you don't need to write 500-word paragraphs. I'm so serious. Oh, yeah, it'd be three or four screens in your Kindle. Don't do that. Honestly, you, you should keep your paragraphs under 100 words just for pure readability. Most publishing houses in the United States use the Chicago Style Manual. That is absolutely true. I have a copy on my desk right now in front of me because I was proofing um, a short story for a publication somewhere, um, and um, I needed to get the chart. <laughs> this is what happens. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll 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 do some personal experiences later about editing. Okay, so the line editor will go through your book. She'll look at readability. She'll look at your content. She'll look at your flow. Now the content will not be as um, what her content review will be is to make sure your heroine has the same color eyes throughout the whole book. She's looking, she's looking at your continuity. She's looking at your grammar. She's looking at your sentence structure. She's looking at your paragraph structure. Um, she may or may not comment on your pace if, if, if you've got a problem with it. Um. But because by the time it gets to the line editor, you should have already hammered out all this stuff with your with your content editor, but a line editor does have a little leeway in um, helping you out in, in that area um, ex- especially if something there's something glaring, you know, okay, so after line editing um, in a traditional print environment, you're going to get a proofreader. Now your proofreader is the one who formats your book for publication. Um, with a printing press. They're going to check for typos. They're going to check to make sure that you don't have any... um, uh, uh, They're going to make sure that your book flows from one page to another when it's printed in such a way that you don't end up with one word on the the end of your chapter on one page. Um, They're um, they're going to check your... um, What's oh, called? They're just going to fix your book so that it looks really good on paper. Pagination. Thank you, Jillie. <laughs> they're going to check your pagination. They're going to fix your pagination. They're going to um, do all your formatting for um, uh, chapter headings and page numbers, and and they're going to do they're going to handle all that. And then if they find any typos or mistakes. Depends on the level of mistake. If it's just a typo or two, they're going to mark them off and send you those pages in the fucking mail. Like really in the mail, FedEx to your house, depending on the company. Now, some of them do all this digitally now, but there are still quite a few companies that do this on paper. So we'll go back to that. Okay, so after you've gone through proofreading, and you get your whole proof. You'll you'll get your whole book proofed physically in your hand if you're with a print company. And it's your job at this point to go through it and find, see if you see any mistakes or problems. And if you do, you mark them off, um, label them, send them back to the proofer. She fixes them, and you're ready to go. The next thing you'll get in the publishing process with a print house is a proof of your cover. You'll review it, check it out. If you don't have any problems, you're okay to go. If if you see something that's a problem, you can give it to your editor. She may or may not fix it. At no point in the printing process. do you actually get any kind of input on what your cover is going to look like with a traditional print house. Unless you're, unless you're JK Rowling. Um, you know, once you get to a certain level of um, of notability, you know, not not notability, um, yeah, when you're notable, when you're doing a bestseller every six months, you get a lot of input on what your book looks like. Um, it's going to come out in hardcover. It's going to come out in um, paperback. If it's going to be an ebook, but when you're on the low the top, you don't even get to see what your cover is going to look like in, until it shows up in your mailbox. And hopefully they've been nice to you. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they make an artistic decision and you think to yourself, oh, my God, why do you hate me? And you can't do a damn thing about it. Now, most of the time your proofreader is actually trained as a technical editor. Um, Julie's going to be on later to talk about that because she – has some experience with technical editing. Um, I don't want to talk out of turn about what she's, you know, her thing, so we'll, we'll let her do that. Um, <clears throat> in a independ- a small independent house, um, like an e-publisher, um, your editor will, oft- will often be the content and line editor at the same time. You'll get one editor... Um, and I have encountered this multiple publishing houses online ebooks, um, where I had one editor after acquisitions who handled my document uh, across the board, and she handled all my issues. She handled my my you know the plot, the contents, the, the commas. I'm a comma whore. Um, I also apparently love the fuck out of a compound sentence. Um, you might have noticed. <laughs> Anyways, so pending on the publishing house um, and how big it is and um, if you're doing print and ebook, will depend on what kind of editing experience you get. If I had to choose, I would actually like to prefer – I prefer work with one person because I often feel like if there are like four or five people involved – It's really. I don't know. I like the more editors are involved in my project, the more uncomfortable I feel. Like I've I've lost control of it a little bit. Um, now, the small independent house. Um, I all the publishers I've ever worked with online. Um, Alora's Cave, Liquid Silver, Lucid, uh, Whiskey Creek. um Changeling, they all have cover art forms that you fill out, and um you get to um you, I mean, you have some input on what's gonna be on your cover and how it's going to look, but I have never had a print company send me one of those forms, not one. I'm just really thankful they spell my name right <laughs> just... okay, thank you. Like I said, I'm mid list and I'm perfectly okay with that. I'm you know, I've 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 never aspired to be famous, so um that, that doesn't really bother me. But yeah, it, it's funny. It, it, it's funny because when you work with a small independent house, you get a lot of input on the um uh the product. And it and it does become a product. Uh which can be a difficult transition for some authors, and some of them never quite make it. And um, I talked before about how um, that, that writing is personal, but publishing is not. And it, 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 it's a business, and you have to treat it like a business, and your editor isn't your friend, and it's not their job to be your friend, it's not their job to blow smoke up your ass, Um, isn't their job to tell you what they like or what, their job is to look at your work and tell you what's wrong. And that can be difficult to bear. My first publishing experience also resulted in me buying the Chicago style manual. Okay, so here's here's what happens. My my, my book got sent off, you know, to my agent and my agent shopped it around. It got bought and I was like, yay. My my, acquisition editor loved it. The content editor didn't have any changes. She was thrilled with the, you know, with it and everything was great. My pacing and my plot was awesome. She said I was on point with my characterization. She didn't have any issues. Get to line editing. dudes, this person sends me my book in the mail, FedEx, I get a FedEx package, and I'm like,
1: why am I getting a FedEx package,
0: I sent him a digital file, why haven't I gotten a digital file back, because when me and my agent worked on the book, we did it digitally, So I call my agent and I'm like, dude, I, I I got my edits. And she says, oh no, are you gonna be a problem? Me? Am I gonna be a problem? I'm like, um, I don't understand them. And she was like, what? I said, I've only ever done this digitally with other writing groups. I have no idea what these symbols mean. What the f? What the fuck is this little squiggly line? What what does this mean? And she said, oh honey, you need to go to the store. Think it's the Chicago Style Manual, you look at it, there will be a couple of pages dedicated to editing symbols. So I tracked my ass down to Barnes & Noble, pick up a copy of the Chicago Style Guide, and fuck me, that was expensive. Um, so I bring it home, and I get it out, and I find the chart, and I'm like, shit, okay, that means she wants me to take it out. <laughs> so I'm going through these things page by page, and any time I had to make changes, I had to go onto my computer, write out the changes, print that page out, and insert it behind the page I was editing. And there were also post-it notes. I, it took me a month. It took me a month. And um, <coughs> I get it done. And I send it to her. And she says, you know, she calls me and she says, Great, thanks. This was awesome. You did an excellent job. I love all your changes. This is, you know, fantastic. You did you did great work and uh, and thank, um, thank you for being so easy to work with. And I asked her, I said, so what's your timetable on digital edits? <laughs> And she laughed and she said that that every time she contacts an author, that's the first question they have. And um, that the the publisher is old-fashioned and um, doesn't seem to be interested in going that route any
1: time soon.
0: Oh, like, bless your heart. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. So we're cool. We're great, right? Great. Now, I have had some of my worst editing experiences with proofreaders. Proofreader comes around. The proofreader has a problem with the word cunt. I have used this word quite liberally in the book. She doesn't like it. She thinks it's filthy. She th- this is an erotica publisher. Hello, this is an erotic romance. They're publishing a fucking erotic romance, and the proofreader has a problem with the word cunt. No, actually, she doesn't get a vote on that. So I call... Now, she calls me. She calls my house to tell me that I need to go through my book and remove every instance of the word cunt because it is offensive and and anti feminist and it um is degrading um and I said um you're the proofreader. I said it just like that. You're the proofreader. This isn't your job. And she says, Well this book is not being published this way and she hung up on me. Now you don't know me. You don't you guys know me a lot better than I think you do probably um I called my agent, and I said, and I explained to her what happened. I said, and then this bitch hung up on me. And she was like, um, um, I'm going to call over there, talk to your main editor, and we'll fix this. I said, okay, I'm going to sit right here while you do that. So my agent calls over to the publishing house and says, um, she explains what happens. And about 15 minutes after I called my agent, I get a phone call again. And it's the editor at this publishing house. And she says, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. And I was like, what is going on? And she said, the proofreader that got your book actually proofs for one of the sensual lines in the house and she and she got assigned your book by accident. I said, Okay, I can accept that part and I assume you're going to be moving my book to another proofreader. And she said, Yes, absolutely. I said, So do you want to explain to me while she threatened to make sure my book didn't get published and then she hung up on me? And while she called me anti feminist? Um, And she goes, oh, God. (laughs) Those were her exact words. Oh, God. (laughs) And I was like, so you don't have an explanation for that. And she said, no, oh, my God, oh, my God, hold on. And she put me on hold. And the next call, the next person to come on the line was um, the vice president of the publishing company. And he apologized to me. And um he said <laughs> he was deeply sorry that it happened and it wouldn't happen again. Um and it was just really it was just really a really stunning experience to have for my first book. And he said that too. He said, I am so sorry that this is happening to you on your first book. This is just he goes, I'm so sorry <laughs> I got a fruit basket. So next day, the next day. Um the doorbell rings and it's actually a fruit basket from the public on um, the publishing company. They sent me a fruit basket to apologize for that proofreader calling me anti-feminist and because she hung up on me. Indeed. Um, my second publishing experience was much, much better. And I never actually encountered that particular proofer again. But I have had other problems with proofreaders who like to... And you know what? I could almost compare proofreaders to those people in fandom who give you unsolicited um, beta. They want to be more involved in the publishing process than they're allowed to be. So they try to assert their authority over um, authors at the end of the process. Um... It never works out well. I'm not one of those people you can bully. And um, the third time it happened, Um, (laughs) a woman actually said to me, she said, you know, most authors are just happy to be published. I said, I got news for you, honey. I didn't want to be published to begin with. I got dared. That's true. I was dared. I was in a writing group. I used to write about her a lot on my live journal but she moved to another state so I don't see as much as I used to. But cyanide chicklet rider um and I were in a writing group and I was I don't know what I was writing but uh I was one of the only people at the table who had never submitted anything to anybody. And um she said, "Well, you know what? I don't think you need to give us any more writing advice until you've had at least one rejection. And then she said, I dare you to submit your book, your next completed book, to three agents. I said, okay, but how do I write a cover letter? (laughs) Because I'd never written one before. So, I submitted it to three agents um about six months later. She helped me write my cover letter because I didn't know how to do it. I really honestly still don't because I now I have an agent and I don't got to. And that's really terrible. Um, I got two offers from the three agents that she picked out. Yeah. She cussed me a lot. <laughs> she was happy for me, obviously, because she's my friend. She wasn't unhappy for me. But she was um, really... She said, you know, I've always known that you, you, you have it. You, when I first read the first thing you ever wrote, I thought to myself, this bitch has it. Whatever it is, you've got it. You're um, deeply, deeply talented. But for you to actually get two fucking author, um, offers from agents on your first tryout, out of three, stunning. So the third, after I'd gotten these two offers, I didn't get anything back from the other agent for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And And I was in the middle of negotiating my book contract when I got the third agent response. (coughs) And he declined to represent me. On this particular project, because he didn't um he was stepping away from romance, he said, "But if you have a science fiction novel, it would be my great honor to read it <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was ugly, it was ugly. I took this letter I took, I took the letter to the cafe and i said, look at this, look at this and she she said." <sighs> Oh my god! Fuck you. Go buy me a coffee. <laughs> it's so ugly, so ugly. So I did get a rejection, but it actually wasn't a rejection. Isn't that isn't that terrible? Isn't it, it's really deeply terrible. Yeah, I mean, he said no to that book, so so it was a rejection, but it wasn't a no to me personally. It was I want to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> it's ugly, ugly. And to this day I'm actually the only writer in our group who has never um who done that. Um who did that, who um who got published out of the gate. And um it's craziness. <laughs> it's absolute craziness. <clears throat> um. Well, Stephen King was rejected hundreds of times. Hundreds. Um, I got really, really lucky because I, um, at the time, um, erotic romance was taking off. It was um, really early days of Alora's Cave, if, if, those are, if, if, if you're familiar with that publishing company, who really kind of was the um, pioneer of erotic romance, um, <clears throat> online anyway. And um, so it was a really new industry, and if you've read my work, and I assume most of you have, if you're in my chat room, unless you're those dudes from Blog Talk who just um, listen listen to my podcast and you can jerk off, I'm I'm not mad. Thank you for the advertising dollars. (coughs) Anyways, um, what was I saying? Oh, I got lucky because the two um, I have a certain kind of style. And if you read my work, you know that. And I also write sex really, really well. And that plays. And that played at the time. Um, So I got, it was um just a bit of cosmic luck. I think if I had submitted two or three years later, I would have been rejected because the market was already flush. But I, but the market was new. And there weren't a lot of us out there writing that kind of content. And agents were hungry for erotic romance writers. And um, I'm a decent writer. And I write really great sex. And it was like mother load, right? So it 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 was just cosmic luck. Because there are plenty of writers more talented than me who are constantly rejected for no reason beyond the fact that the market can't bear them. Publishing is a lottery. You you hit the right person at the right time with the right book with the right idea and, and you're gold. And then, you know, it's just, this is what it is. And it is easier to get into e-publishing markets because their overhead is smaller. I don't think that if I were a new writer, that I would be able to get into the print market because the print market is shrinking by the day. And it is um, a New York bestseller a decade ago had to sell three times as much as it does today to get on the New York bestseller list that number keeps getting lower and lower and lower and lower how many copies you have to sell to get on the bestseller list. It used to be a hundred. Um, at one point I think it was like half a million copies to get on the list. Um, it's just it's um, It, it really is genuinely a lottery. Um and um so some of us just get really lucky. And I'm not saying talent is a factor and I'm not trying to down myself and say that um I'm, I'm I'm not a good writer. I know I'm a good writer. Um but the first time my friend told me that she thought I had it, I was like, What the hell is it? What the hell is it? You know, and so I was like, I don't even know what it is. And then but then I read somebody that blew my mind. And I was like, "Oh, oh god, this person's got it. <laughs> Whatever it is, she had it. It was like, "Holy shit. This is this is amazing. You have to send this to my agent." <laughs> and and that and my agent um signed her and um uh yeah boom 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 um it's uh it's just you know, honestly, I think that as a new writer I would um looking back through experiences with both print and just strict e publishing and independent houses versus large conglomerates like um Bantam Tor uh <sighs> Penguin um just off the top of my head, you know, Harlequin. Um, if I had to choose between those as a new writer, knowing what I know about the process and about the companies, I would nine times out of ten choose to be published in a small independent house, even if the money isn't as good because the process isn't as stressful and it's not as impersonal. Because when your book is being passed around between four and five different editors and you're not um, being kept in the loop until they're done with you, it's like being in a factory. Uh, and it's, it's it's a really uncomfortable experience to have. Um, but, you know, and the thing is, is, if you're in it for the money, then you need to go the traditional route because that's, that's where the money is. Um, but if you're just in it for the story, then... I would go with a with an independent house, an an, uh, an e publisher, um, because you're going to get a more personal, intimate experience. And if it's not about money, and honestly, it shouldn't be, because even in print, um, although the money was good, I didn't get it immediately. Like I would get like a small advance, and then two years later, I would see royalties. So, um, you don't publish for money these days, because uh, <coughs> Harry Potter comes around once in a lifetime. It it really does, and so no, it it definitely was not retired to Aruba money. I'm I'm not living in Aruba. Um, it paid the bills for a little while, and then you know you, you have to write another one pay some more bills, you know. <laughs> Cuz a book has a um has a half life um when it comes to that kind of thing. It's better now in the ebook market than it was in the past because your book would leave traditional stores um and it would end up in a used bookstore and you don't get any royalties out of that. Um, and so you kind of had one shot um at it. But now an ebook it's not financially um Risky to keep a book in print and available to purchase, you know, on Amazon or on Nook or on iTunes or wherever you buy your eBooks. It's just it's um it's easier and less financially difficult to keep an eBook out there than it was to keep a print book out there. So your mu- so you get so your book lasts longer in the market, so to speak. And you can pick up a new reader. That new reader comes along, oh well, I have to buy all her ebooks and buy all your ebooks and you're like, Yay, give me my um give me my five dollars. <laughs> now <clears throat> one of the thing I would say, um about this, um the the whole publishing deal, um, is I know that self publishing is popular. Uh I know that a lot of self publishing happens on Amazon, um it's, it's happening, I think, on iTunes. I'm not sure. Um, you know, Nook makes it really easy to do. Kobo makes it really easy to do, um, to self-publish. But self-publishing does two things. One, it exhausts your first print rights for that book. Once you've self-published, your first print rights are gone and you can't get them back. Even if your book is available for a day on Amazon, your first print rights are gone. Even if no one buys it. And print houses want your first print rights. They want your first rights. To get second rights is less money for them and less money for you. Because a second print rights are often... um, I'll talk about that in a minute, Dart. Um, are often um, you get less royalties out of them? They'll say, "Okay, well, you know, we'll we'll publish this, but we're gonna, but you're gonna only get like five percent royalties because you don't have, because you, cause you've because this is this this is a reprint, you, you've already exhausted your first publish, but more okay, so that's that that's the professional side of it, the, the technical side, the the money side. The other side of self-publishing is, <clears throat> if you've not paid for professional editing, which can honestly run between $500 and $1,000 for a 75 k novel, if you've not paid for professional editing and your book hits Amazon and gets bought, you have created your first impression for that pen name. And readers remember. (coughs) Readers will remember a bad writer just as well as they remember a good writer. (coughs) So keep it in mind. Just, I mean, you know, if you want to do it, do it. Do it. Be aware of what you're giving up for that pen name and for that particular book um, if you fail. Guided self publishing, Dark just mentioned this in the chat room. Um, <clears throat> when I first started out, there was a, a company called um, Publish America. And what it was, was basically it was guided self publishing. And what Publish America did was they took your book and they told you how great it was and how they would love to publish it, and it will only cost you $500. And they barely edited it, and they gave you crappy cover art, and you paid 500 bucks to get your book published. I don't know. Anything worse in the world... (laughs) Than paying somebody to publish you. This is such a moment of profoundly, pathologically low self esteem that I can't fathom it. I, I can't. Money flows one way in the publishing relationship. It comes to you as a writer. It doesn't leave you. Pay your agent. You don't pay your publisher to publish you. Vanity Press, yes. Vanity, self-publishing, print-on-demand. Print-on-demand is different because a lot of publishing houses are using print-on-demand now to put books out in print for those authors who want it. My current um, Fall For You is in print-on-demand. My publisher is doing it for me. Um, I didn't pay any money for that. That was all their deal. Um, But self-publishing and vanity publishing. Vanity publishing um, is... When you get to that point, you're basically saying to yourself, no one's ever wanted to publish me, so I'll pay somebody to publish me. And if that's the route you want to take, that's fine, but it's not fine. It really isn't. Never pay somebody to publish you, especially in today's situation when you can go over to Amazon and publish your own ebook in like 30 minutes. You don't actually. You don't need a vanity press. You don't need to pay somebody to publish you. You can get a cover artist to make you a cover. It's gonna cost you money, 150, 200 dollars. You can get an editor to edit your book, 750, 500 dollars, maybe a thousand dollars, depending on the length of your book. Because a lot of times they charge by the word, um, <clears throat> or the page, depending on the editing service. Um, and get all that done, and you can put out a really professional-looking book. Or you can self-edit, use the cover art creator that Amazon gives you, and put out your book. Not so professionally. But you don't ever have to pay a publisher to publish you. Because what happens with a Vanity Press is because they're technically publishing their book, you split royalties with them. But if you self-publish and pay for your own cover art and you pay for your own editor, any royalties you get from Amazon or Kobo or Barnes and Noble, that's all yours. All five dollars of it is yours. You don't have to share it with anybody. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding about the five the five the five bucks. Um, <clears throat> sometimes a book will sell like hotcakes, and sometimes it won't. And you'll be like, why? <laughs> Why did this book do so well, and this book, which is really, you know, I don't understand. It's got a shifter in it. It's got a werewolf. What? 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 There's there's no rhyme or reason to it. None. <coughs> None. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. It's all... Um, it's all a guessing game about what's going to be popular. I heard a really great story about an author who had a series of books out about Navy SEALs. Um, she had four books published, and they had really not sold. I think she said that they sold like 10 or 15 copies a piece, and she was kind of you know, pleased with that. She was happy that somebody had bought and read her work, and she was okay. And the ones who had bought had given her really great reviews. Oh, yeah. That can happen. Easily. No, I'm not. No, I'm not dropping zero, sweetheart. 10, 15 copies. She was thrilled. Just what the market is today. Um, Of course, (coughs) if our economy tanks, then the, the numbers will go up because when the economy sucks and we're like in a depression sort of situation, people buy more books. But when the economy is really good, and people have a lot of money. They're not wasting their money. um, Well, they're they're not using their money to buy books because they can afford to go out to eat and to the movies and stuff. But a book is cheaper entertainment. Anyways, she sold 10, 15 copies of each book, and she was thrilled. She was happy. Then SEAL Team 6 killed Osama Bin Laden. And she made $50,000 in a week. Yeah. (laughs) Those books went from 15 copies to $50,000 in a week. So, You don't know. You don't know what's going to sell and and what's not going to sell because the books were good. The books were great. But there was no market there for them. And then suddenly, overnight, SEAL Team 6 was the sexiest fucking thing on the planet and there was a market. Right? That's why I tell anybody in the publishing industry, um, author, editor, Uh, Cover artists, um, that your sales are not a reflection of how beautiful your cover art is, or or how story is. Um, It's the market, and there is no predicting the market. Yeah, she was already there. She was she was there. She she everybody to the punch because she'd been writing that for three or four years. And she had those four books out. And um, boom. Boom. You know, the market is fickle. Um, And. There was a time when I was younger when I was very invested in numbers. Um, how many have I sold? What do I have to do to sell more? What's this check going to look like? But now now it's about the story for me. And if, if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. Um, did I love that story? Absolutely. Am I really proud of that story? Hell yes. And that's enough for me. If it's not enough for you, Be careful you'll just end up hurting your own feelings because there is no accounting for the book market yeah like do I I, I need to get a voodoo doll (laughs) what do I have to do (laughs) But but there really is no accounting how that's going to work out you don't know And we see prime examples of books that make millions that shouldn't. And I can't talk about it. I won't. I won't go there. I promised myself I'd never go there again. So you really cannot tell what the market will bear and um, what market is there for your book until it's out there and until you've um, hit Amazon and it either sells or it doesn't. <laughs> definitely definitely summon a sex demon <laughs> if You're gonna summon a demon Definitely summon a sex one um, So yeah, you know, the thing is, I was just, you know, that's just really That's what it boils down to the, um, the market is completely Unpredictable Completely unpredictable Um You look at the Harry Potter book, and when it hit, um, and it was small, and it was small, and it was small, and then boom, it was, oh my god! And now it's movies, and it's a theme park. But imagine if Harry Potter had been published ten years before the internet, and it has still been published by that small publishing house in Britain. Now, before some asshole emails me and tells me that the internet was actually created in the 70s, I am aware. But since I was actually a child of the 80s and I was in high school and in college in the 90s, I can tell you for a fucking fact that we didn't actually have the real goddamn internet till like 1995. And even then there were only like, I don't know, 200 sites and all of them were boring except Yahoo. I was there. Thank you. So keep your opinions to yourself, fetus. You don't know. If you weren't there in 1994, listening to AOL dial-up, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But, but, but just imagine if it had been published 10 years before the internet was really you know, what it is today, or even what it was when it was published. Um, would it be the international phenomenon that it is? Maybe, maybe not. You've got mail. <laughs> no. No, doll, we don't miss you. <laughs> and yeah, fandom fandom on the internet exploded. Exploded. Fandom before that was really confined to ma- to mail zines and meetings um and uh what's what do you, what, what you call it listservs and uh conventions. <clears throat> really says <laughs> you know, weird meetings on Prodigy. What was that? What was that instant messaging service where you could have like chat rooms? Um, oh, God, what was it? Well, not not Usenet. No, no, no. But yeah, definitely Usenet. <clears throat> there was this one particular ICQ. Yes, <laughs> ICQ. <clears throat> yeah, you have chat rooms, and you know, you yeah. know my space but it's a you know it's a different world today it's it's a different world um and so you have to keep that in mind and um I you know, I agree, Dark. She said in the chat room, imagine if the original Star Trek fandom had with access to the internet. Hell, they would have gotten five more seasons out of that. They probably would have gotten ten. But Yeah, I mean, because the fandom that they were got them movies. And they were just at conventions and passing around fanzines. I mean... Seriously, think about it. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, the market is completely unpredictable. I mean, yeah. a book has sells 0 copies today and on the internet and you're like, "Really? Cuz it's so good. It's so good. Why aren't you buying this book?" Cuz there's so many. There's so many books being put out there. Um I you know, I read I read something once on um one of the, um the publisher oh, this publisher put it out, and I forget which publisher it was, um, that they estimated that there were four to five hundred new ebooks added to Amazon every week. And that was like five years ago that, that, that I read that. It was on some publisher's newsletter. It might have been an agent's newsletter. I don't remember. Anyway, four or five hundred books a week put on Amazon. Imagine what that number is today. If a thousand books are hitting Amazon every week, how do you stand out? Because you're competing with publishers, you're competing um, with, with both small and big publishers, you're competing with um, self-published writers, and you know if if there are so many titles going up from Canada, from the United States, from Britain, they're all you know all Australia. But <coughs> Mindspring. I went to Mindspring. I had Mindspring first and then I had AOL. Um they're doing an internet history lesson basically in the chat room. Um Earthlink. I think I had Earthlink too. Yeah, absolutely, I had Earthlink. I think I moved from AOL to Earthlink cuz I got mad at AOL, which is pretty easy to do. Cuz AOL sucked. The best part about getting internet back then, you guys, for those those fetus who are listening, I mean that with all affection, I promise, um, is that you would get your internet um, program on a CD or sometimes a floppy disk. And you would stick it in your computer and it would, you know, and it would dial up. Um, Yeah, you had to hook your computer up into a phone line, and then it would dial. And sometimes there would be like six, seven, eight numbers, depending on your area. But then if you were really unlucky, there were only like two numbers, and it would take you like a half hour to get um, in because each number had, uh, had had a small amount of people who were allowed on each number. I used to get internet CDs every week. AOL, Spring, Earthlink, MSN, you name it, I got it. The first time, this is going to kill you guys, you young people, you, you youngins. The first time I ever stalled in Microsoft Office on a computer, it was on 22 floppy disks that I had to put in the computer in the order with which the computer told me to put them in. Put in disk 2. Eject, put in disk two. Put in disk one. (laughs) Eject, put in disk one. Poppy disk. Poppy disk. 22 of them. Took three and a half hours to install Microsoft Word. Or Microsoft Office. You don't know you don't know. You don't know what the internet did um, if you weren't there for it. Uh, it, it literally, it, it just, it changed everything. Yeah, War Perfect still exists. It sucks, but it still exists. It still sucks. Still here. Still sucking. Speaking of sucking, did I tell you guys, me and my husband were out in the garage. And I was being kind of an asshole. I'll, I'll admit that. Um, and he said, you need to calm down. <laughs> Stop yelling before the neighbor hears you I said she can suck my dick And he said Hell no she can't (laughs) (laughs) I got nothing I don't know I don't know what the clunky sound is I'm not hearing a clunking Are you guys hearing a clunking Barbara's hearing a clunking I don't know, but are you mean the chucking sound on the dial up? Oh, oh, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. (laughs) On the computer, yeah. Oh, Oh, hush, dark. My first computer used cassette tapes. Okay, so don't even. I think my first computer was, oh, like, 52 gig. I mean, it was ridiculous. And it, and it literally used cassette tapes. And I had Buck Rogers. I had a Buck Rogers, um... No, 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 it, it couldn't have been gig. It, it, it just could not have been a gig. Um, no way. But it, but it, it used cassette tapes. KV, probably. Yeah, kilobyte. Um... <laughs> and I had a Buck Rogers game. I loved it. I love Buck Rogers. Yeah, yeah, it was DOS. It was it was totally DOS. <sighs> Terrible. Anyways, um technology definitely has changed the publishing market. Um availability has changed the publishing market. And like I was saying, if you have a thousand books, conservatively saying hitting Amazon every month um, I think probably honestly every week but we're, let, let's just go with every month if there's a thousand books hitting um, Amazon there are plenty of books on Amazon that I probably never saw a single copy because there are so many it's just, it's just the way it is so <clears throat> Uh, I talked on um, the daily thing about um, there being two kinds of writers, uh, those who publish, I mean, those who write because they want to write, and those who write for attention, um, <clears throat> or those who post for attention. And it, it, it does boil down to that. So I, I think that um, to um, to keep yourself and your ego safe, <laughs> you need to, Always, always, always write for yourself first and consider, if you're going to go into original work um, and seek publishing, consider whatever money you get a bonus. Never, ever, ever expect to live off that money, ever. Maybe you'll get lucky and you'll write a bestseller, but you probably won't. I mean, you probably do have the ability to write a bestseller. It would be a book that would be a bestseller in the right circumstances, in the right situation. Still Team Six, kill somebody else awesome. Be bad. (laughs) They'll be hot again. So, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just write for you. And if you publish, publish for you. Do it because it makes you proud and it makes you happy. But don't seek validation and approval through sales and money. Because that is a road to hurting your own feelings. Take it from me. Um, Lady Holder, are you um, on here? There are too many people in the chat room. Lady Holder is published. Do you want to get on the air and talk about it a little bit? And then we'll switch to Jillian and do the, t- the technical editing. Okay. That in the middle thing really oh. worked out for me. Now I can keep you guys separated in my in my head. <laughs> it was, oh, okay. yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes things like, especially, especially with numbers, you know, talking to somebody, it took me a year mm-hmm. and a half to learn my own social security number. Um, If you if you give me a little trick like that and it sticks in my brain, it works like a charm. Good. Yeah. So. Sorry for Julie for doing that. (laughs) Now I look on my phone and see whose number is who. (laughs) I mean, I I just put going. Well, on your phone they should be labeled. I mean. Yeah, you are on the phone. Crazy. Uh huh. So I looked on my yes. phone to figure out who you were. Well, now I don't because I got a trick. Anyways, yay! Yep. Okay. What do so, you, what do you think um, you've learned about yourself as a writer in the editing process?
2: I thought I had a thick skin. Bye. Hmm? I said I thought what? I had a thick skin. I didn't. <laughs> it-
0: I should have been meaner to you in the beta process I should have have told you a
2: couple of times Well, here's the thing I thought I was doing okay Because the first couple um, edits I had They were not um, hand What's going on with your headset, babe? They were pretty brutal Huh? What's going on with your headset? Sorry Um, It was tucked in the wrong place, I guess How's that? (laughs) Better Okay. Oh great. Don't mind the cat. Um so the first um I guess the first three um edits I had were relatively um easy. I mean they didn't feel like it. Uh everything went what I thought was smoothly and I looked at some of the edits and I, I um I seriously did a couple of tilts and went, okay, they're in the business. They know more than I do. And I went along with it. The fourth one honestly was like pulling teeth because I had one idea and my editor had another and it was a very different thing. And some of the, the suggestions I took, some of them I fought for. So them, and then I felt like I was being passive aggressive. It was kind of weird. <laughs> I think I I actually I'm I'm pretty sure that I reached out afterwards and said I'm sorry if I was a pain in the ass, but <laughs> you know <laughs> you don't burn bridges, you know? It's it's you just don't. But you know, sometimes
0: Yeah, if you're going to destroy as a as bridge, you 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 blow that shit up. <laughs> don't set it on fire. Just Go straight to TNT.
2: Look it for morbid. It's the only way to be sure. Yeah. No, in this case, it, no, it was... she's right. Um, you need to be
0: civil unless they're just completely off the rails. Like, I can't use the... I, cunt lady.
2: Can't use the word cunt. <laughs> yeah. The but she
0: hung up on me, and that was the
2: killer. <laughs> yeah, that was stupid. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I don't care if she wasn't even... Even if she was an editor from a different line, you you don't know it. Just because somebody is a brand new author to your company doesn't mean that they're not somebody who's, you know, bigger in, in a different pond. You know? Um, no, I'm not fun. <laughs> yeah, no, Stupid.
0: I've never known that you know, shit.
2: Uh, well, the thing is, is now you remember, you, you remember this lady. She's not a, exactly a fond memory, but the I fruit was great. From hey, good for that. I learned something from all four editors. Okay, or actually, I had three um, books. Uh, two and three went with the same person, but it was um, it was a very Every single one of them had had things I had to learn, and so for me, it's um, it's actually led to me starting some stuff and getting like into it and going, mm, nope, and starting a new one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly think that I learned most the the, the learn. I, Honestly, if I have an editor who's easy on me, I'm I'm really uncomfortable. I, I feel like I'm not learning anything. I'm like, are oh, bitch, are you even reading this? Are, are you looking at my commas because I'm terrible at commas? Are you looking? <laughs> mm-hmm. I have to prefer. I would prefer to get an anal probe edit than to get a light,
2: lovey-dovey, um, kid glove edit. I'm pretty sure the, the husband um, real recently had a, an endoscopy and a. a um, up the dust for, for to check for colon, uh, colonoscopies, and he had it in the same procedures. And I think I would prefer to have one of those Super. than to have another one of my uh, book number four edits because I'd probably enjoy it more. But,
0: <laughs> You're unconscious for that anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you got to get to that point first. But look, it, I honestly I think
0: that your fourth edit taught you more about yourself as an, a writer mm-hmm. than your first three edits. Oh, I'm
2: not going to disagree. I'm not going to disagree, but I had to go through the first three to get to the fourth. And the fourth <laughs> one was definitely one where I swear to God, if I'd had a giant curly straw to stick in the half gallon of rum that I've got, I'd have had the, that bottle of rum finished by the time I hit the end of the edits. It was.
0: <laughs> I drank a bottle of wine the week I did those paper edits. A month. It took me a month, but but the first week I had a whole bottle of wine. I now wait. I don't drink. It's a shame.
2: I know. Yeah. But you know, I I I I got it. I did it. There's there there's no faster in this. Unfortunately, dark. You actually have, because it, it's a bad problem with me. I don't like reading my own work. Okay. I will go back and read it for my edits. I will go back and read it for continuity, um, but rereading really? it for fun doesn't – yeah, I hate it. It's I, just like I hate hearing my own voice.
0: Are you serious? Because I'm honestly – when nothing else entertains me, my own work entertains me. Because, well, like I said, I read Ties at Barn like ten times before I ever put it online.
2: I well, the problem is time I'm it, hypercritical. Maybe you
0: guys like to read it.
2: <laughs> I'm hypercritical, though. Okay, I get to reading it and I see every single thing I did wrong. All right, so for me, it's um, it's not always fun. <laughs>
0: She see what Chili put in the chat room. She said, "I reread my shit all the time. I have read so much awesome stuff no one else has ever even seen."
2: Meanie.
0: <laughs> evil. That is a cock tease and a half. What you I do reread my own work a lot. I do. I honestly, no other writer entertains me as much as myself. <laughs> But see, I, I will reread when I'm... I write to entertain me.
2: hmm Oh, I, I, I enjoy the process of writing. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's just... And I think part of it is if I'm, if I'm writing something, especially when I'm in the stage where I've, um, I've written it to, be, to, to go to my, my uh, publisher, and then I get the edits, and then I get the edits again. And sometimes I get the edits again. At that point, I hate the book. <laughs> I hate it. I want it gone. Please get this thing out of my out of my email. I'm done. Now I have. I will admit, I've actually I've actually gone back and well, I I think I remember that one, but I've actually gone back and reread it. Um, the the uh, um, werewolf ones, and I like them. Okay, mm-hmm. but I like them now. I didn't like them when I when they were published. They're great books. I enjoyed them. I really did. But God, my I hated them after the edits. <laughs>
0: The only book that I have ever um, come out of the gate hating um, is the book that I had to rewrite because of the giant hard drive failure, um, oh, and I hated that book after I finished it. I hated that book during editing, and I hate that book today. <laughs> I have I have only reread it once in the past decade. Yeah, no. And I've read Todd four times in the last year.
2: I've <laughs> reread um I've reread my stuff, the the fan fiction. Um but it's I can't find myself getting lost in it. All right. I reread it and I'm critical of it <laughs> because I'm 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 checking to see there, there's this all this new knowledge running through my head, and and I've got it going as I'm reading stuff and going, I need to get this fixed, and I need to do that, and why did I do this? edit woman? And it's it, it gets in the way of the enjoyment.
0: I do feel yeah. like Julie's right. You do need a self appreciation intervention. <laughs>
2: Someone
0: said, reread all my own stuff. That's why we write because no one else is writing what we want to read. That's not why I write. Yes. That's That's why why I I write. That's why I write fan fiction. But that's not why I write. Mm -hmm. I write because I can't not write. I can't not. I can't not write.
2: I cannot write if I tell oral stories. Because I can tell the stories, all right, and I can spin a yarn, but I, I in my head, are, are you know probably millions of different stories. It's getting them written down. Sometimes that's the the hard part. Um, I write because it's fun. I write because I want to read something, um, even if it's just that initial. You know, write, uh reading as I'm writing. Um, sometimes I write because, you know, I see something and it's like that makes no damn sense. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix that, and I write to fix it to something that is going on in fandom. Um, or sometimes you
0: read something and you think, "Holy shit!" Yeah, cabbage
2: Patch babies. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. They got cabbage
0: patch yep. babies in The Hobbit. Hello, Mm -hmm. favorite trope of my life.
2: (laughs) Yes, and I'm eagerly awaiting that. I I swear, it's it's going to be awesome. Just because I can't see, I can't see your characters as anything other than deeply sarcastic and very um, mature. You know, they're no.
0: I get what you mean. They're
2: not Yeah, they're I not one dimensional characters. They're not a name. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes for me it's like um I look at something and, and I may not like the story that was written, but the idea behind it, hey yeah, that grabs my attention. I'll go write that. You know That's the trope. Um, I've got one in. Yeah. I've got one floating in my head. It's probably gonna be a short Maybe. And I know exactly where it came from. And it's really dark. And we'll have to see if I actually put it down on paper because I can see what it is in my head. But making it work on paper without it being a horror novel is going to be interesting.
0: I write in my head. But in my head, my book's... Are like
2: movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see my characters doing things, but it's it's taking the what what works as a visual and putting it into words. That's the the translation that gets interesting.
0: I only ever write in my head when I don't have access to paper, or writing down, typing is is not. Viable for my situation Um, It is always my preference to write Write, 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 which is why I have So many fucking folders in my writing (laughs) And why I have 22 Historical novels that have never seen the light of day Damn
2: it I I have at work um, A very plain Normal folder or or, or notebook and all my pens that I use at work because if I pull out the the magic pen, that thing has lights on it. And in the middle of a conference room that's at half light, as you're writing with a pen that's got a blue light on it, even the dentist manager notices the fact that there's a blue light on that pen what's going on there. (laughs) 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 Got a regular pen. I see nothing. I look like I'm taking notes and actually paying attention to you. I haven't heard what you said in the last 10 minutes. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good times. Uh-oh. That's not right. i throw Walmart. Sorry, that's not right. I, I love I, composition I notebooks. 50 I haven't used the ones from last year. I had more books. I had stuff. Mm. I was fine. Well, okay. the office also gave me a couple legal pads, so, you know, I was, I was, um, I was safe.
0: <laughs> Yay. I'm going to put Jillian on and talk about technical editing. Thank you. Okay. Go for it. You're welcome.
1: Are you ready? You cleared me being in the bathroom by, like, 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully
0: you would have had your mic muted.
1: <laughs> well, I did, of course. I don't ever take that kind of chance. That's something you never lived down. <laughs> no. What is that? What, what was going on? When we came on the phone? Oh, nothing. I, it was I was pouring water. Wow. <laughs> Technical editing. Um, technical editing. You know, unlike uh, – I think that there's a lot more – stand a lot well, standard is not the right word. Um, there's a, a lot more predictability in the editing process in um, fiction, regardless of what publishing house you, we are in, than you'll find with technical editing. Because um, there's so many different kinds of technical projects. But let's talk about – I'll specifically focus on something that is um, – going to go to print because, you know, but everything kind of gets edited, right? But not everything is going to be consumed by um, actual end users, like the public is not going to see it. Um, so it usually um, you don't have the whole acquisition process because at least not in the kind of work that I, I do. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there that is potentially someone submitting an idea for some kind of technical manual that they want to write, but often those kinds of things are more like a how-to guide, and that's not quite the same thing. Um, but so that might run a little bit different in terms of the acquisition side. But so usually the project is more assigned to you to write and then to edit and whatnot, as opposed to sourcing it. So it's kind of like you know you're doing the grind on this thing, and there's a lot of glitches in the process that are difficult to work out. So like the content edit, um, like let's say you're, you're going to write a manual that's going to be published um, for some, I don't know, computer guide or something that's going to be, your software guide or something that's going to be published. Um, the content editor has to be a subject matter expert. And often that, is depending upon what kind of guide you're putting together, is it either an engineer or the person who wrote the manual in the first place? Oh God! So <laughs> it's very difficult I just to
0: imagine get a- the grammar. And that yeah, it's very
1: difficult. So it's difficult because like, a technical writer is in a very difficult position because technical writers kind of function in a few different ways. But one way a technical writer works is they get like an abstract or a white paper or a specification from a, an engineer or an engineering team and they say, make this comprehensible for end users. And you go, oh, okay. And then you translate that into something so that a real person can understand. Um, but then your subject matter expert is the source engineering team, right? So that they have to do the content edit. Or let's say, like I'm going to use my sister as an example of this kind of technical writer, your company sends you a piece of hardware and says, document this. You're like, all right. And then your subject matter expert is probably the hardware engineer. Neither of these people in either case are qualified. <laughs> <laughs> to really do a content edit. So you run into a situation of where you're kind of content editing by committee in a lot of cases, where you have subject matter experts who are not writers and they're not editors. But you have to do a content edit because you have to make sure that the content is correct. And um, I've had real problems with engineers thinking you don't understand their their technical vision and your job as the writer is to ensure that that their technical vision is comprehensible for whomever and then you also have the issue of someone's going to look at look at if if it's going to go to print someone's gonna look at it for um some of the content editing stuff like flow um you know, making sure that things are presented in a good order and that kind of thing, and there are people who are experts in how doc- in how technical manuals and technical publications should be laid out but typically, the technical writer is as much of an expert in those things as anybody else is um or they wouldn't be in the position that they're in about how to put together a technical publication um so you really the big sh- the the most painful work is definitely what I would call that that whole Sort of nebulous con- uh, content editing piece is really painful because you have to get the subject matter expert to agree that w- what is written is uh, is accurate, and you have to get whoever is um, approving it from a style perspective to agree that it's okay. And you just don't want some you know big Russian engineer screaming in your ear about the fact that. <laughs> You don't understand <laughs> what he meant <laughs> when he said execute. <laughs> I was like, shut up, dude. I don't even want to talk to you anymore. Um, Stop line me. editing line editing for technical writing is also very problematic because if depending on who the publisher, how this is going to be consumed and how it's going to be published, they will want a professional line editor to go over it. A lot of times, for even even if they specialize in technical publications, they don't necessarily specialize in your industry. So maybe they do medical, but maybe they don't do maybe they don't do medical displays. So they know they know medical jargon, but maybe they don't know display technology. So it, it all becomes this a mishmash of different expertises that nobody quite ever fits perfectly. So you'll get a lot of corrections back, and they'll go, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And you write back and go, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. <laughs> and and are like, you don't understand the context, you know, or whatever. And they're like, well, what does this mean? And then you spend a lot of time on the line edits because the, the line editor um, is working from a different frame of reference than what you wrote. And it's not – I would say the people management is almost more of a problem than we want you to change something. It's like, okay, you want me to move that period? Fine. Um, so assuming you survive the line edit and you survive getting through, um, did, did we spell everything right? And for anybody who's I've ever rated for is going to see this influence in how I beta. Consistency, 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 consistency. Is everything spaced the same? Do you always present information the same way? Um, Are you using, you know, everything needs to be, everything is about simplified, simplified, simplified. You want to present it clear, concise, short. Um, Technical writing is about lack of emotion and clarity. It is not about style. So the editing process, the line edit. If you use the phrase, if you use, and actually I did a, a write up on the Daily Something about. Um, um,
0: and damn it, I have no idea why sometimes I capitalize atrium and sometimes I don't. <laughs> yeah,
1: but that kind of consistency. But I did something about one of the parenthetical phrases, um, specifically like things like well, and those are all emotion words. And you if you put well comma. In this instance, you could do this. A line editor should – a technical line editor should flay you alive for that kind of emotional crap in a technical document or a technical publication of any kind because it doesn't belong. It doesn't belong there. There should be no – And this is
0: why all those technical writing manuals read like stereo instructions.
1: (laughs) And they're supposed to because they don't – it's not about conveying emotion. And there should be no narrative. in. like one of the things – I had this biggest problem with this one guy – everything he'd present to me, and he'd want you to preserve the stuff, his part, his piece. Because he, he'd give you a tiny piece for the overall schematic you're putting together. And he'd be like, um, I want you to preserve the way I said this. I said, I can't. That's a, that's a narrative. I can't preserve that. Why would I want that? No, that's not the way we do it. And most most companies that do technical writing – um, have a style guide too. A lot of them use the Microsoft or the Apple style guide about how to present information, what gets bolded, what gets highlighted, what gets not what gets italicized, what gets bolded and italicized, how you number. You know, everything is very prescribed, and your your line editor is going to catch all of those inconsistencies if you screw up. If your spacing is wrong, they're going to catch it. And they're going to be like, no, 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 you didn't follow the style guide here. Why did you, you know, at the third indent, you're supposed to be using a dash, not a bullet point. Um, and and they know this stuff off the top of their head because they know the style guide, and that's their job to catch that. So, because I've done both the writing side and the editing side of that, when I beta, I have, I am just, I am such the consistency police because it's just the She's way I a was base. trained. I am a beast She's about a beast. consistency. And I usually will say, and I will go like, I don't care which way you do it, although technically <laughs> this is more correct, but I really don't care. Just pick one and do it the same all over. <laughs> <clears throat> but then it's, and the, the, the proofreading process is a little bit different because um, they're doing pagination and stuff as well. But when you're dealing with technical publications for big companies like let's say like Hewlett Packard or Intel or Xerox or those kind of things, they have special fonts that are custom fonts for them, uh, special font sizes that you have to use, special font colors. You have to use very specific Pantone colors that are proprietary to them. Um, so the, proof, the person who's doing the layout is going to make sure things fall correctly on the folds. Like you ever get a, like a piece of equipment that has one of those giant p- posters that comes out of the box? There's someone making sure that things fold, that the layout is right to the fold, um, that things don't fold on certain words or whatever. Um, They're making sure that the colors are the correct color, that you use the right font, that you use the right size font, that you use the right weight, that it has the right kerning. I mean, it's just just the, the proofing is so nitpicky, and they will bounce it back over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like, why didn't you catch that the first time? (laughs) And you'll go through 10 (laughs) or 15 rounds in the proofing process while they nitpick to the company. So now you've got through the writing style guide. Now you've got to go through the company's style guide for how their font is going to sit on the page and how far it has to be from the margin. And you can't have these two shades of blue touching. And I kid you not. Um, We can't have that shade of blue next to that shade of blue. And, you know, we can't have this company's name within four inches of that company's name. It's just the rules are ridiculous. And it's just the bounce process. It goes on and on and on. And you'll feel like your soul has been sucked out by the time (laughs) the proofreader gets done with the layout. And you're like, is it done? Is it done? And then you find out that it's going to go to, like, all of this work is going to be, you know, maybe it's going to go to 100 engineers who aren't even going to notice (laughs) all of this crap.
0: Um, I I see a total wanking motion.
1: Yeah, more often than than not, like, when you do, like, a big layout kind of thing, um, you have, um, it goes to... You know, it goes it goes in with a product like a like a scanner or a printer or you know, or a monitor or whatever and um thousands and thousands of people. Or it's a
0: read me in software.
1: Or or it's a readme in software. Um but some, some products require um there's government regulations that require a printed something that certain things have to be printed. So you know going in which pieces are going to be printed and then the company, so it's mandatory that these pieces have to be printed and these pieces are optional and then the company will decide based upon budget constraints or what their end users need or whatever, are they going to print these pieces of the manual or are they going to give them a readme? And you don't know sometimes which of the pieces that are not mandatory are going to be readmes and which ones are going to be, or or are going to be download files versus which ones are going to be mandatory. Mandatory prints in the box, so you just have to proceed like it's all going to get printed, and you don't often won't know to the end which ones are actually going to go to go to print. Um, but of the mandatory prints, um, you know those get you know every consumer who who gets you know certain kinds of you know hardware are going to first thing they're going to do it's going to say you know read me first, and they're going to unfold this poster, and they're going to go, okay, um, this is how I set up my printer scanner monitor whatever and that's why the company's so fussy about does it look right does it have the right colors the right spacing um even though you know like the consumer is not going to care if it's a quarter of an inch or a third of an inch from the margin the company cares so um so all that comes in um in that final proofing process and one of the things that complicates it is a lot of times technical writers are not working in Word. A lot of time, well, they're sometimes they are, but a lot of times they're working in FrameMaker or Page. What is that? What was that other Adobe product that sort of predated FrameMaker? Some of them still use. It. Is, I can't remember what it's was called.
0: Wasn't it called um, PageMaker, or is that somebody else? Product. Oh, so I yeah, remember pages. having so a page.
1: page maker and then you have a frame maker is much more common these days in technical publication and then you have people sometimes who actually do it. There's um, all these different different products and then you have these um, these products that specialize for online content delivery like Madcap and um, RoboHelp and stuff like that for developing help files and writing help files is a completely different skill to writing for end user for, for writing for print publication but they all have to go through the same kind of editing process. And so you have a lot of times um, anybody who does a lot, any company who does a lot of technical writing has a content library. And um, you'll be pulling your content, a lot of you know, pre-written content. And companies don't want to pay because like companies that have multiple localizations, they don't want to pay to have the same boilerplate translated over and over and over again. So you have a content library in you know, the 10 or 15 languages that you support. And then when you're putting your guides together or your manuals together or whatever, you only translate the new pieces. You don't translate the stuff that's been translated before. So it gets very complicated how you're putting stuff together and how you're managing content. But the person who's putting together the document for the publisher will be pulling from the same paragraph and content library as the person who's doing the help files that are being done in a completely different set of software. But you have almost <laughs> like a source code control. You know, so everybody, so it's like you've got multiple technical writers, multiple, sometimes working on multiple things, almost have like a source code system. Um, and then you've got to deal with like how the editors are making this change and how does that propagate. And, and oh, if an editor makes a change that's in something we've, done, we've had translated, how does that impact us? Um, because that's a big clusterfuck when an editor comes back late in the game with a change that you've already had translated into 14 other languages, um, and they want three or four words tweaked, and you're like, "Oh my god, this has already been translated." Um, so it just it gets to be the editing process can be very complicated, and if you don't have a good process flow, and as the writer, um, you have to be um, I think is the te- as the writer you you have to you have to police every step of it. Whereas I think the editor in the in the creative market, the editor kind of controls once they have it, they're kind of they're kind of not controlled, but they're kind of guiding and pulling the process along once it's in their hands. Whereas I would say in the technical publication, I would say the writer continues to have to especially depending upon how um, distributed your technical publication model is. The writer has to pull that, they're almost like project managers. They have to pull that whole process along and make sure that those editors aren't coming back late to the game with stuff so they don't have to pay to have a 200 page manual retranslated into 14 different languages. And yet, you don't retranslate the whole thing. They do this fuzzy matching thing and they only charge you, like some, you know, they give you a discount on, you know, on the, how much they have to retranslate. But it's still weeks of delay into your schedule if an editor comes in late with a change. And that I've been in situations where that's happened.
0: I wanna where we my got, listening to it. I'd be like, What? No.
1: No. No. And you're you ta- not talking about and you're talking you're talking about weeks of delay and potentially a hundred thousand dollar bill or more for that translation, that retranslation. That's and that's the discounted for the fact that you're <laughs> changing,
0: you How know do I know no
1: no like it's like it's like it's just like and then what happens is is that you, you can get there can be a you know big repercussions um if if there's a breakdown in the process like that so writers don't want to see the process break down in that way um because ultimately they're they're considered more responsible for the project than the editor is uh so you just don't want to do that and a lot of times and here's the here's the Freakiest thing that's ever happened to me is I'm working in – we're working in one application. So let's say I'm working in FrameMaker to do layout and um, someone else is, say, working in RoboHelp to do the help files. The editor has none of that, none of it. The person doing the line editing has none of those software applications. So we have to ex- figure out how you to export the whole thing just to text into Word which we do for the for which we, we, we reduce in some cases anyway to let the editor edit it, but they're only seeing it in its non-laid-out fashion, right? So it sometimes you get you get edits back based upon flow that are artificial because you don't go in and make sure it all. It's like those things aren't even the thing you're you're complaining about. Flow is there's there's a, there's a giant picture right there in the actual layout, so. Um, I don't know. It just gets to be very complicated. It's got like a thousand moving parts and uh, it can be very painful, the whole editing process. I think it's like the worst part of technical publication is is editing. But worse is companies who don't want to edit. They don't want to pay for editing. They just want the technical writers to do it all. And so what you do then in that case, and I've been there, they want you to swap off. Okay, well... She wrote that manual, and you wrote that guide. Switch. <laughs> it's like you're like you're some kind of, you know, swappable subject matter experts. That's Just because a, that's you're both ugly. technical writers. It is because you're not interchangeable.
0: <clears throat> now I realize that editing can be expensive, but. That's using your people in a way that's um, really kind of disrespectful.
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's. I mean, and some in some places have like one stop shopping. It's like, okay, you're the technical writer. We expect you to become the subject matter expert. We want you to be able to do the art. So, like, you have to be able to. Take you know, like bring your own camera in. I know somebody that was in this position. Bring your own camera to work. Um, take pictures of the products. Render the line drawings to create the the illustrations to put into the manual to put into the manuals. Do the layout yourself. Um, then edit I your own content. Draw for
0: my life. I couldn't draw if my life depended on it.
1: Oh, it's terrible with Asus. So Some technical writers, they literally have to be the drag jack of all trades. And they have to then do their own editing and do their own document layouts for print. And like the only thing some of these companies pay for outside of, um, um, outside of the technical writer themselves is uh, translation, if they have to have it. And then the, you had better be sure you are on the money when you submit that to translation, because if you have you, you just if you have to go to your boss and tell them that you need to have something retranslated, you're screwed. You are never going to hear the end of that.
0: Remember that time you cost us a hundred thousand dollars to translate fucking paragraph? <laughs>
1: they're like sorry. And what are you going to do? It's like it's wrong. It's wrong. We we use the wrong words, you know, you know, and you know, or you know, or what <laughs> happened to my sister. I don't know what it was, but she got they had they had like all down with it done. They'd submitted the 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 Japanese the final Japanese stuff, not Japanese Chinese stuff, to the um um translators for final proof because the translators were also doing proofing. I don't I don't even know how that worked in that case. But the translator came back and said, "Hey, your layout with the in the Chinese has got a problem." And I'm like, "Well, what?" And she's like, "Well, you can never have this character wrap on a line. You'd have to wrap it two characters before." And she's like, well, "I don't, I don't read Chinese. How am I supposed to know that that character can't be wrapped?" So, but why there, can't that character
0: she, be wrapped?
1: I don't know. It's like it was just like you can't. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's like some big grammatical problem that you wrapped on that character, and so you have to like enter a hard return to make sure you don't wrap on that character. You have to look at your final layout and go in and manually adjust, manually adjust your lines so that you don't wrap on certain characters. Well, that destroys the fuzzy matching they do on the translation. Oh god. <laughs> oh god. I mean, the moving parts in the editing and publication process of technical documentation, especially since you're doing most of these companies that actually, if you're actually publishing a technical manual, user guide, um, help sheet, whatever it is, if you're actually actually going to a professional printer, odds are it's going to be translated. You're probably not just doing it in one language. And... Once you're in that position of having to deal with translation services, the editing process is exponentially more complicated. It is so hard. I mean, technical writers just, they, have, they do have the patience of saints. It's one of the reasons why I stopped doing it full-time. It's because I just, I, it was driving me crazy. It was driving me crazy. It just made me absolutely nuts. This is my sister's full-time job is doing this kind of stuff. And the stuff she writes actually does go to print. So she has to deal with this whole cycle of, um, you know, everything, everything she does, as a matter of fact, goes to the consumer. So everything she does goes into at least ten languages. So this is, this is her daily grind. And Barbara it's just, says,
0: because some sounds in Chinese are letter combinations and cannot be separated. Well, there you go. Because if you change the combination, and then you change the meaning of the word. Okay. So, have a great day could become fuck you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Probably, she didn't say that. She didn't say that, podcast listeners. She did not say that. I was being an asshole. Um, Although, if it could, it'd be awesome. Awesome.
1: But you become very unattached to your word baby very quickly. It doesn't matter how proud you were of that thing when you finished writing it. Like, I don't know, 10% into that editing process, you're like, oh, just kill it.
0: (laughs) Kill it with fire.
1: (laughs) Just kill the word baby. I don't care anymore. I quit. You're like, I have have detached and not with love. (laughs) I have detached (laughs) with some fiery hate in my heart. Please never let me see this project again. <laughs> one of the last big, one of the last big, um, um, I have to be a little bit vague about some of this, one of the last big technical writing projects I worked on, and it, was, it wasn't just from a technical writing perspective, I had other roles in this as well, was there was like some big security hole and whoever handles big security holes for the government, I cannot remember what the agency is, that goes to technical companies and they say, you have this security breach has to be fixed. And you have to plug it within this amount of time. And what what we had to do is we had to, um, part of the fix that the government was saying we had to do, and we had only like six weeks to do it, had to be fixed in our compiler. So we had to go and we had like because companies just have tweaky versions of their compilers and engineers do not like it. If any of you've ever worked with an engineer, engineers do not like it when you mess with their compiler. And <laughs> <laughs> they just don't. And so every version of our compiler had to get an A version where we just implemented this little security fix so the, and so we could then so then we could go and recompile all the code in the company. And with all of these like 10 or 15 versions of the compiler, so every single compiler, production compiler we had, had to be re-released with like a little teeny squiggly little A version. And I had to document this whole process. And I spent and my job was to document it. Doc, was, I, mean, I had other. I guess I had other role in this too, but the documentation side was just to document. I spent more time telling engineers to shut the fuck up. <laughs> i'm like i am just writing down i all i'm going to do I, i i asked you a question i asked you to tell me what would change when we do this i don't want to hear your monologue about how you don't like the fact that we're making the change shut up and answer the question Just do it. You don't get a choice. When the federal government says you're going to do this and you're going to do this by this date, I don't care how much you like your code the way it is. You're going to do what they say. And if you don't giving me a hard time, you're never, ever, ever having another pleasant company picnic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ruin your professional life.
1: So I have never had to face. Well, I mean, I had somebody pick apart a short story really harshly once, but I've never had to face um, a creative edit. Um, but I've done this technical editing thing for years. Um, I want to. I partly thinks that it would be more, more emotionally diff- difficult to do the creative one. But past experience says I would much rather have that emotional thing with something I'm attached to than the soul-sucking, nitpicky, you know, tap dancing around regulation, font sizes, kerning and color that you go through with a technical edit and what that looks like and the the just harping on consistency and you can't narrate, you can't give your opinions, you have to just, you know, just make it clear, make it concise, put lots of white space in.
0: I think, honestly, considering you are um, technically um, a very clean writer, that your first creative writing um, edit, if you have any hits, it's going to be in areas that you'll take very personally. Yeah. Because, um, Because technically, I mean, you're really... I mean, you have an A game, technically. Um, not that your other parts aren't. You know, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's like when, when I go into an edit, uh, I never take the grammar personally because I know where my we- my weaknesses are. I'm like, okay, fine. But let that bitch. <laughs> oh, you know what? Your pacing's a lot. Fuck you, my pacing is perfect! <laughs> <laughs>
1: How dare you talk about my pacing? What do you mean my character is not fully developed? Are you crazy?
0: Do you not see his? Oh, do you not see his suffering? <laughs> do you not see what I put him through? But no, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm being an asshole. But um, that's where I think that um, people who uh, coming into the process, uh, it's it's when when it comes to grammar, it's a yes or a no. I mean, the rules are right there in front of you. You need to pay attention so you don't look like an idiot. But when it comes to um, matters of characterization and plot and pace, um, those, are the, um, those are the parts that you um if you have a problem that your editor hits you on, um, that you're
1: going to take personally. Yeah, I, I just, without having been through it, I would liken it to the creative process is like being attacked by a shark. And the technical process is more like being eaten to death by minnows, and it's just it's just different, you know. And just one is a bigger punch, and the other is an endurance test.
0: So, how do you want to die? Do you want to freeze to death, or you don't want you you want to get set on fire? <laughs> right. And hope the smoke kills you before the fire. <laughs> I just what? don't want to
1: hate my word. I just don't want to hate my word, baby, by the end. Because I don't mind detaching from it, you know. I don't mind that a little bit. But I don't want to be wanting to stab it with knives. <laughs> so That's editing's over.
0: I, I have come out of editing processes absolutely appalled. <laughs> but I... um. White Lady Holder was talking about, you know, not burning bridges, um, with the exception of that one proofer, I, uh, I don't make waves in the editing process, because um, you don't stand out that way. You know who stands out in the publishing house in, a, in, a, um, in the editing process? A fucking diva. Do you know how they stand out? Badly. You don't <laughs> want to be that... a good way. You don't wanna be that diva because you'll be like, No oh, please don't make me edit her book. She's so horrible. Oh my god, I'll do anything. I'll edit all all of the rimming next year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll get all the gross references out of all of the anal sex scenes. <laughs>
0: I'll edit all that to avoid her. No, I'm. Mean, but seriously, seriously, I have encountered that where um, a publisher will have a hard time getting an, 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 an editor to work with, a line editor to work with an author because they're an asshole. So don't be an asshole. Because editors approach your project in a way that is utterly impersonal. Well, it's not impersonal to you. And so they'll treat your work professionally, and in some way completely, um, in a way that's not their word baby, because it's not their word baby, and you have to keep that in mind. We're down to 38 seconds. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll be on podcast tomorrow. I'll let you guys know on Twitter and Facebook. Say goodnight, Jilly.
1: night, everyone. Shut,
2: Shut up, up, up and sit and down. down.